What was the catalyst that made you decide, wait a minute, this isn't the direction I'm going to go in and this isn't what I want to do with the rest of my life? Yeah, I think the one word answer to that question is pain. Pain was the catalyst. Welcome to the Small Steps Big Wins podcast. I'm dedicated to helping you take control of your life. Together, we'll explore practical tips, expert advice, and inspiring stories to help you overcome obstacles and achieve your goals. Making small changes is possible and can lead to big results. Are you ready? Let's go do this. Brian, thanks for taking the time out of your day to be here. When I say I am honored, I really, I'm truly honored um, that you're here. I appreciate you. I'm thrilled to be here. I appreciate Austin connecting us and um, just really excited to have a great, great conversation. You've accomplished a lot. I can't wait to dive into everything that you've done. So anybody who doesn't know anything about you, you know, give us a flyby. Yeah, the flyby, I mean, there's a bunch of different kind of lengths of the flyby that we can give, but I've spent half of the last 25 years as a founder CEO and the other half as a philosopher. So as a founder CEO, I built and sold um, a couple of social platforms before Facebook. Um, newest company, we made crowdfunding history um, with Heroic Public Benefit Corporation. And then when I wasn't doing that, I was reading, writing, thinking, and teaching as a lover of wisdom, a philosopher. We've created um, protocols that have been scientifically proven to change lives with Sony Lubomirsky, one of the world's leading well-being researchers. We've trained 10,000 coaches from 100 countries around the world um, on our protocol and um, most recently wrote a book called Arate, which is the one word answer the ancient Stoics would give you on how to live a good life which we translate as virtue or excellence, but it means something closer to being your best self moment to moment to moment. So that's kind of the short story on that side. Married to my best friend, Alexandra, two kids, 11 year old, six year old, Emerson and Eleanor. Um, and I just feel blessed to do what I do. So one thing I know uh, that I've heard you talk about before is that there was a turning point in your life where you realized that the education, the degree, and the six-figure income was, you know, not the end-all be-all. What was the catalyst that made you decide, wait a minute, this isn't the direction I'm going to go in, and this isn't what I want to do with the rest of my life? Yeah, I think the one word answer to that question is pain. Pain was the catalyst. This feeling that I, in the quick kind of sketch to get us to the point where I made I mean, I've made that decision many times to kind of continue to try to find what I'm really passionate about, what I feel called to do. Um, but I grew up in a lower middle class family. My father worked in a grocery store for 39 years, first generation college student, worked at a huge professional services firm out of UCLA, but threw up on my way home from work. First week of, of uh, on my job, you know, thought I'd go to law school, top 10 law school, get his stamps and I'm a smart guy and I can go make the six figures plus. And I threw up when I moved into my apartment at UC Berkeley's law school. And then I dropped out. And, and but for me, it was it was just I couldn't see myself doing the first career I started in or being an attorney, but I had no idea what it was that I might do. But I just knew that I couldn't do that. Um, so I don't I don't know how to frame it up in concrete terms, but there's been this physical, literally a physical kind of sensation of when I'm not on the right path. And then a very low tolerance to do things that I wasn't passionate about and a willingness to take a fair amount of risk to, as Joseph Campbell would say, enter the forest at the darkest point. 
and to trust that somewhere in there I will discover, you know, more purpose, more meaning. Um, and then I've gone through that countless times. You know, Campbell says a good life is one hero's journey after another. You don't go on one and figure it out, then you're done. You're constantly exiting your comfort zone, constantly challenging yourself um, in micro ways. And in sometimes, like my case of dropping out of law school or selling a business and, and be going on a sabbatical for years, you know, these things, um, I've done enough times and now I understand the intellectual, theoretical, archetypal framework. And I have enough experience to know that that's just what a good life looks like. Um, anyway, now that's a long answer to your short question, but that's some of what has driven me and catalyzed different stages of growth. Uh, what I really appreciate about your story, and I'm so thankful that you shared it, is that you went through iterations. You, you didn't figure it out once and then stay there. And the message that I hear is that, you know, it's okay to go through those iterations. Whereas sometimes well, not, not only is it okay, it's mandatory. It's mandatory. Well, it's it's, it's not a societal norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you move from just a playful back and forth. You move from it's not okay that I feel uncomfortable and I'm making these decisions that I just I'm not sure if I'm doing it right, to it's okay to oh my gosh. That's what a good life is. A good life is a willingness to, as my coach, Phil Stutz says, embrace the three inevitables, pain, uncertainty, and hard work, constant hard work. And you will never get to a point where that goes away, which, as you know, is a big part of my, my philosophy in the book is rule number one, it's supposed to be hard. And the story we tell ourselves that it shouldn't be happening, I would say, is, is the primary reason and obstacle for our happiness. Because when we embrace those obstacles and say, bring it on, that's exactly what I should face. A hero battles dragons. It's supposed to be hard, you know? So we've been seduced, as you were saying, by society to think, going after the wrong thing in the first place, and then we're told that it should be easy. That's a double, a double whammy of pain, you know? Yeah, right. And I want to capture the word that you said, story. And that the stories that we tell ourselves really do dictate how we uh, view the life that's in front of us. If we look at those stories and we say, oh, life should be easy. Let's sit back, mm -hmm. relax, and every day should be a vacation. Then when those bumps do hit us, we don't have that framework in order to process what's yep. coming at us. So talk a little bit about Arate and the framework to process those challenges that are in our lives. Yeah. So then Arate again is the one word answer the ancient Stoics, Greek philosophers would give you on how to live a good life. Live with virtue, live with excellence. I like to frame it up and the way I do it in the book, I explain it to my son who at the time was 10. So explain Arate to me like I'm 10. All right. Well, in any given moment, you're capable of being a certain version of yourself. And I like to draw a line about I height. And then if you're actually being something less than that, draw another line a foot below. And there's a gap between who you could have been and who you actually were. It's in that gap in which regret, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, et cetera, exist. Now, again, it's more nuanced than that on one level, but it's also as simple as that. When you close the gap, when you live with Arte in the moment, in which you show up as your best self, you feel a deep sense of joy, purpose, meaning flow. The Greeks called that the summum bonum, the greatest good of life, to experience eudaimonia, good soul, where the best version of you is expressed. That's Arte. Understanding that that's the ultimate game of life, 
not collecting Instagram followers or square footage in your house or whatever other extrinsic thing you have been seduced to believe, we have been seduced to believe is the most important goal in life, which we all know intellectually is silly, but you got to know that a good life comes down to deepening your personal relationships, becoming a better person and making a contribution to your community. Um, and you shift and you know the ultimate game to close the gap, be your best self in service of something bigger than yourself. Then, you know, rule number one of the ultimate game and a good life is it's supposed to be hard. So that's kind of the intellectual frame. And then when life hits you, you do the things you know you do when you're at your best, even when you don't feel like it. And you forge what I call anti-fragile confidence. And I've got a few tattoos. I've got Arate on this arm. I've got heroic on this arm. And literally New Year's tattoo is anti-fragile confidence. So to be, be anti-fragile, yeah, it's the opposite of fragility. Nassim Taleb coined the word. It's, it's way more powerful than being resilient. What if when life hits you hard, not only do you not break, you get stronger. And it's very much like going to the emotional, psychological, kind of philosophical gym. You go to the gym to lift weights to get stronger. So what if you could view your life's challenges as weights in your philosophical or spiritual gym? And literally use them to get stronger. But as we do that, we build trust in ourselves and we know that we have what it takes. We approach our challenges rather than avoid them and wish they'd go away. And you even get three, five, 10% better at this and you fundamentally change your life. So that's, that's kind of the, the high level frame. Yeah. Matter of perspective. I mean, like what you, what lens you view your challenge through, whether you're going to embrace it or whether you're going to try and run from it. It's kind of like the buffaloes in the storm analogy. <laughs> yeah, the run right. yeah. The, you yeah. know, isn't it the buffaloes run right into the storm and they make it, it then that way it passes faster versus I yeah. think the cows try and outrun the storm yeah. and then they just wind up staying in it longer. I heard you say that uh, anti-fragile confidence is actually stronger than resilience. How would you define anti-fragile confidence and then re define resilience? Yeah, that's great. I appreciate the opportunity to make the distinction more clear. This is the theme that, that, um, really elite performers ask me to talk to their teams or their special forces units about. So I like to imagine like a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, we've got fragility. I'm fragile. Then you move past that to resilience, but most people stop there. And resilience is basically, all right, if I'm fragile, life hits me, I break. I'm like a package that, you know, you write, handle me with care because when it gets hard, I break. Resilience is better than fragility. But on the spectrum, it's not the best possible outcome. The best possible outcome would be not only when you're resilient, you can handle more stress, then you break down, then you bounce back faster, right? So it's better than fragility. But what is the opposite of fragility? What literally would happen if when you get hit, you get stronger? That's anti-fragility. Um, and the way to, 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 to forge that is to combine anti-fragility with confidence. So I'm kind of an etymological nerd, right? Confidence means intense trust. Confidera, intense trust. Intense trust in what? That things are gonna go perfectly? Of course not. That you have what it takes to meet any and all of life's challenges. But then the question is, well, how do you build intense trust in any relationship? If you and I scheduled our time to come together and I didn't show up, you may give me one pass, but if I don't do what I say I would do a second time, I'd lose your trust and I should lose your trust because I'm not the trustworthy person. Now, if you tell yourself you're going to do something, 
whether it's meditate, eat a certain way, you know, get a certain amount of sleep, spend a certain amount of time with your kids without your phone, and you don't do those things, every single time you don't, you're eroding your trust in yourself. You shouldn't have confidence. Now stated positively, when you get clear on who you are at your best and you more consistently, never perfectly, but more consistently do the things you say you will do, which is rule number one of leadership, and it starts with yourself, you build confidence. Now here's the trick. Anti-fragile confidence is formed when you do the things you know you should do, especially when you don't feel like it. So most people, when they get hard, get hit hard by life, start doing all the kind of things that I like to say, invite the clowns into town, the circus comes into town, right? And we've all got our behaviors. But what if when life hits you, rather than numbing yourself and binge watching, drinking, eating, etc., you double down on your protocol and you do the things you know you do when you're at your best, when you're at your worst. And this is the, the, the essence of anti-fragile confidence, which we can talk about again a lot more, but helping people get clarity on who they are at their best and creating a protocol is step one in our, in our coach program, um, in everything we do in the book and in the app. And then challenging you to do those things when you feel your worst is the essence of anti-fragile confidence. It's why I tattooed my body with it. I think it's um, the most powerful part of um, what we do with Heroic and in the book Arte. Right. When we start building that confidence in ourselves by saying we're going to do something and then we follow through and we do it, then that is going to not only will that build that confidence in us, but it'll also allow us, as you said, to bounce back when life hits us really hard. Actually, this is a perfect conversation for now because at the time we're recording this, it's now January 11th. Everybody has set their New Year's resolutions. Uh, I'm going to go to the gym 10 times. I'm going to eat this way. I'm going to like all these New Year's resolutions come out. So there's a couple of things going on in the psyche, though, when that happens. What are some like one or two things people can think about to change the pathway and change the thinking? Yeah. And, and again, in stepping back, everything you said, you know, the science is almost funny and how true it is. Um, but I think the first step is actually embracing the fact that you're not alone. The story that something is inherently wrong with you leads to shame, which leads to wanting to give up and say, screw it. And then you'll think about it next New Year's Eve and you'll go through the same cycle. So the first step in my mind is it's common humanity. Rule number one of self-compassion is you're not alone. It's not because you're you, it's because you're human. As BJ Fogg puts it, a lot of us think we have a character flaw. And again, we all have you know, character flaws in different ways, but we think that because we haven't been able to change our behaviors, something must be inherently wrong with us. He says, perhaps instead, you should consider the idea that it's a, it is a design flaw. You haven't been taught how to effectively change your behaviors. Now there's a science and an art to behavioral change that you'd be wise to study and to strive to master. But don't shame yourself and think something's wrong and then just give up. Everybody go through, goes through these challenges, myself, of course, included now, today. Okay, cool. You take two steps forward, you slide back one step. Sometimes you take three steps back and crawl your way back up to where you were. George Leonard, in his great book, Mastery, puts it. But the master stays on the path and they show up and they take small steps to get eventual big wins. And that's art. I mean, art is moment to moment to moment to moment to moment you have a choice 
Are you stepping forward and closing the gap or not? These are small steps that when you aggregate them and compound them over a long enough period of time, you fundamentally and permanently change your life. Most people want it all now, right? So we're seduced to go after the wrong thing. It should be easy and it should be fast. But the reality is growth occurs over an extended period of time and you have to embrace the setbacks and the ups and downs of life. And then again, do what you know you need to do, whether you feel like it or not, and just get one, two, five, 10% better at that day in and day out and everything changes. Um, Again, I said a lot and a lot of that is easier said than done, but I think those are some things to keep in mind. I love that you keep coming back to the fact that we're human. (laughs) (laughs) because I think sometimes I know it's important, but sometimes we think everything just has to be perfect. And you have to take that breath, that deep breath and realize that, wait a minute, it's okay. Failure is a good thing. And that's one of those areas that I've seen lately start popping up more of this idea of embracing failure. Growth mindset 101, you know, the, the, uh, Carol Dweck, one of my favorite teachers and, and her book mindset and another one that's less well-known called self theories are the two books I use most in my parenting. So 11 year old, six year old, I was grown up. I grew up again in a, in a conservative blue collar family. My father struggled with alcohol. His father struggled with alcohol, ended his own life. Very fixed mindset great way to create a perfectionist who doesn't tolerate any imperfections or mistakes. So I've made it a very, very deliberate effort to make sure my kids know that growth occurs um, in the process of making mistakes and learning from them. So we win or we learn and learning is winning. So we win or we win and mistakes, M-I-S dash takes, mistakes, right? Um, oops, I, I didn't quite do it the way I wanted to. Well, how, let me try again. Let me do it a little bit better. And a joke in our house is, you know, Abraham Maslow said there are no perfect human beings. So whenever I make a mistake, whether it's spilling something or doing something silly that just wasn't right, I literally deliberately make a big deal out of it with my kids. I'm like, oh, shoot, I was almost the first perfect person. And they giggle. And then I say, oh, no, that was my 1,728,623 mistake. And they laugh. And I say, well, why are mistakes good? And they immediately say, because that's the only way you learn something. So there's a fearlessness when we approach life, embracing the constraints of reality, knowing we're never going to be perfect. No one ever has been, no one ever will be. And you and I won't be the first is one of my lines in our coach program. Um, And then you learn, you roll up your sleeves. And when you get knocked down, you look at it and go, all right, well, what can I do differently? And you don't waste your time shaming yourself. You use the data to get better. and it's such a powerful frame and such an important frame. I, to make sure that it's it's apparent, I am absolutely a recovering perfectionist. One of the classes I teach in, in the Heroic App is, is Conquering Perfectionism 101. You want to hold the high standards for sure, but then you want to embrace the constraints of reality, the first of which is you're never going to be perfect. Then you seek you know, excellence slash perfection, knowing you're never going to get it, and as Tal Ben-Shahar says, quoting Carl Rogers, your ideals become guiding stars, not distant shores. You're never going to get there. There's no there there. So just look to your ideals as guiding stars and then do your best. Um, when you fall short of your standards, perfect. What can you learn? Take the next step. And again, as we spiral up and evolve, um, life becomes a lot more fun, you know, when we start embracing these simple truths and um, showing up and doing our best. 
there's a couple of things in there. I love the spiraling upward, you know, that we kind of like, we kind of have to go through these iterations of ourselves in order to get to the best version. As you were talking, I was thinking about the word perfectionism and having a high standard for ourselves. What's, what's the difference between the two? Yeah. I mean, Tony Robbins talks about the fact that perfectionism is the lowest possible standard, you know, perfectionism, another anonymous author says it's the last excuse of the amateur, you know? Like we know we're never going to be perfect. You, you may have a great day or a great moment, even a great day, but perfection is an unattainable standard. And, and Tal Ben-Shahar, who taught the largest class in Harvard's history, says that there are actually two forms of perfectionism. One is actually healthy. The other is unhealthy. So the unhealthy one he calls perfectionism. And that's what leads to all the things we don't want. Anxiety, depression, eating disorders, all the other things, right? But high standards and then you think you can do all the things you want to do you know for him it was he was a world-class athlete um and he was an intellectual and academic and he was a father and all these things and so he wanted to be able to work 16 hours a day train the four hours a day he used to do and somehow get enough sleep to be able to show up for his family as well and there's not enough hours in the day and he failed to embrace the constraints of his reality that's the difference between an unhealthy perfectionist and a healthy perfectionist that he calls an optimalist. An optimalist. An optimalist embraces the constraints of reality and they do their best. Optimal means the best within the constraints of reality. Um, now, the constraints of my reality include 24 hours in a day, the fact that I want to be energized, productive, and connected to my family. So I got to start making trades and I can't do all the things that I want to do. Now I still hold very high standards and I consistently fall short of them, but I know that that's inevitable. And then I use the data to get better when I'm in my more enlightened moments. And it's all, it's all part of the process of becoming our best selves. And I think that wisdom is a cardinal virtue for a reason to understand how to live a good life and to understand that these things are just inherently part of the human experience is really important. And then discipline or temperance or self-mastery is also a cardinal virtue. So then you need to have the discipline to do what needs to get done, whether you feel like it or not. And then love is another cardinal virtue. You got to have self-compassion and care for obviously those in your world. And then courage. You got to be willing to act in the presence of fear. So life becomes about embodying these virtues, closing the gap, living with arte. But an important truth is you're never going to get your potential is asymptotic. You're never going to hit that point where, oh, I figured it out. I'm done. And when you embrace that, the pain, the uncertainty, the hard work becomes you can enjoy it a heck of a lot more. And you see it as an indicator that you're trying your best. Um, and uh, then you just get back to work and figure out what needs to get done right now and get to it. It's get rarely it. shaming yourself more, you know? Yeah, right. So the cardinal virtues, we've got wisdom, discipline, love, courage. Was there one more? Those are the four cardinal virtues of every ancient wisdom tradition. And then, you know, on the back cover of the book, as you know, we've got the four additional virtues that science says are most highly correlated with flourishing, which include gratitude, hope, curiosity, zest and love again so you know that's ultimately what my work is all about is um helping you operationalize the ancient wisdom and modern science um, with some practical tools i love it which one do you personally gravitate to the most that's a great question um 
Well, the way I frame it up in my mind is arete is the meta virtue. Wisdom is knowing which virtue you need more of in this moment. And that's, that's kind of how I approach it is, all right, so in this moment, I'm capable of this. Maybe there's a gap. How do I close it? That requires wisdom. And then it requires discipline to actually close it. And again, the love and self-compassion, all these things. So to me, it's a very um, interactive thing. Oftentimes when we're feeling overwhelmed and stressed and burned out, we're taking a lot of things for granted or maybe frustrated. So gratitude is really important. And then maybe we've lost the sense of hope. We can't see a better future. Well, that's incredibly important. Curiosity, you know, all these virtues kind of come together. Um, I'll say that science says the virtue most highly correlated with your flourishing is um, somewhat surprisingly on one level and not on another zest. Your sense of vitality, your energy, which is why in my work, we, we obsess about your fundamentals, eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, focusing your mind. Your physiology drives a lot more of your psychology than most people realize. So I'd say I'd say <laughs> all of that, they, they all kind of play together, you know, and in any given moment, I do like to ask myself, all right, what do I need more of? You know, the first thing we built in our app was a virtue compass where we help you clarify, all right, where do you need to go a little bit? Uh, more in your life today. We've got some inspirational quotes and tools and whatnot yeah. to help you get clarity on that. Well, I'll put a plug in for the app. I do have the app. I do use it. And when I started listening to the book, I got the book on audio um, and first. Uh, I have my own copy now, but because it's definitely worth to have a physical copy to interact with. Uh, some books you can do on Kindle. This one, uh, not. <laughs> this one mm. is not a Kindle book, but it's great mm. to listen to. But anyway, um, in the book, it talks about your virtues and then sends you to a website that you can go to to actually find what your top virtues were. So I did that. I found out my what mine were. And I was thinking about virtues because there's a long list. I think there's, what, 25, 24 of them. Yes. So I was pondering this because I'm going through the list. I'm like, wow, well, I want to embody all 24 virtues, right? And I don't know. So my question is, you know, our personal virtues, and it'll give you the top five or 10, do they stay with us for a lifetime or can they change and evolve? And is, you know, if there's a virtue somebody want, quote unquote wants to have, can they eventually embody that? What are your, what does your research say? And what are your thoughts? Oh, what a great question. So thanks. Yes to all of that. So, uh, well, that's and good again, news. <laughs> I, yeah, I shared the cardinal virtues um, and then the sub virtues. And then in the book and in the, again, everything we do, we talk about, all right, those are the general ones, but then you have specific ones. And this test you're talking about is called the VIA, VIA, Signature Strengths Test, Values or Virtues in Action. And it, it was created by Martin Seligman and his colleagues with the Positive Psychology Movement. Now you take the test, it takes 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is. You take the test and then they, they basically, they did what I talked about and took it to the next level. So they started by studying ancient wisdom. They identified four cardinal virtues and added two more. And then they separated those across 24 total virtues. You take the test and they give you what they call your five signature strengths. And their research shows that when you know the virtues you tend to embody naturally the most, and you deliberately put those virtues into action, you are happier than people who don't. So your five virtues are different than my five virtues, and the odds of them being the same, the stats on that are insane. It's like one in whatever. 
Because if you do the permutations on the 24 and your rank order of them, it's, it's exciting. So mine are creativity, hope and optimism, energy and zest, courage, um, and what is in purpose. These are my top five. Now, a couple of important points. Most people, when they look at that, they say, but I wanted that one. And they want to go get that one up. Science is unequivocal. Again, you don't want to be, usually you don't want to be like most people, first and foremost, with respect to most people, uh, but slow down and look at what you're really good at, what you naturally are inclined to embody. Do more of that. Double down on your strengths. Do more of what you're great at. Now look at your weaknesses and the strengths that might be lower on the list and just make sure they aren't kind of sabotaging your life, you know? And if they are, then you need to bring them up, you know? Um, but ultimately we want to focus on that, which is latently great within us and spend more time making it more of a conscious expression. Um, and then another facet to your question was, will it iterate? Yeah, mine have iterated, but not by a lot. You know, my, my core strengths have always been creativity, hope and optimism. I see a better future and I, I want to create it and I can help others see it and create it. My energy and my vitality has always been one of my formative inform yeah, formative strengths and virtues I strive to embody. Um, and then the courage and the purpose, like those are inherently part of my essence. Um, but my wife's are different. Hers are creativity as well. Curiosity, love of learning, um, playfulness. They're, they're different, you know, and she, I read transactionally, like I want to get something out of it and I'm good. You know, I got what I needed and she just reads and just curious and just always exploring all these ideas and podcasts and stuff. That's a really important strength for her that yeah. manifests differently in her than in me, et cetera. But no, a long answer, but I'm so happy that you did that test. And Yeah, I did. And I can't remember what they were off the top of my head. The book is in the other room, but I remember curiosity was one of them. So, so I, would I, encourage like you, I would encourage you, and you'll know this when you go through our coach program. If I woke you up at 2 a.m., I want you to be able to tell me these are my top five strengths because I want you using them every day. So then then what you do is you identify how you have used them in the past. And you'll notice that your best moments when you performed best and enjoyed life the most were when you were embodying those virtues. Then we say, all right, well, if that's how you felt when you embody them, how about we embody them today? And how about we make today a day in which you live in integrity with those virtues? Then what do you experience? Well, you're living with Arte, you experience a deep sense of joy and meaning and purpose. So again, it's a really fun process to move from theory to practice to mastery and crystallize it. But that's one of those fun things that you'll see me come back to again and again as we spend more time together on the program of, all right, well, what are they, you know? And just yeah, yeah. But think about it. <laughs> to your point that you were saying, you know, those top five that you are generally are going to be the common threads of who you are. And then when you operate in those, you're going to be at your best self. You're going to be, you're going to enjoy and love life. And as I told you, one of mine is curiosity and it comes out in my podcast because I love to ask all kinds of questions. Yeah. You ready for another one? Let's go. I love it. And you. <laughs> Why do yeah. you love those stoics? So I see the picture of the, those of you who are watching this on video. You have these awesome pictures behind you. And I am going to go out on a limb and assume that they are the stoics. Why do you love them so much? Yeah. So I've got a wall of heroes. You can see two rows. I've got a third row above. I've got another wall that has a different set on them. Um, you know, obviously my, uh, company and our app is called Heroic Public Benefit Corporation. And um, our aspiration is to 
you know, run our business the way our heroes do, and also to help people find the heroic within themselves and activate that potential. But yeah, I've got a number of my heroes on the wall. I'm kind of um, flanked by my two favorite heroes, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. So my favorite teacher, Epictetus, and my favorite leader, Aurelius. And then I've got my coach, Phil Stutz, oops, over there. I've got Winston Churchill back there. I've got Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, and then I've got um, Eisenhower who led D-Day. But then I got my kids. I got my wife behind me. I got myself, my kind of heroic portrait behind me, challenging me. And, you know, the ancient Stoics, one of their practices was to imagine your ideal sage and then to live as if that individual was watching you and live in integrity with the version of you you'd want to be to make them proud, you know? Um, so I've got my heroes looking at me all day, every day and inspiring me with the qualities that, that they embody, that I aspire to embody. Um, and that's that's uh, why I've got them up there and a quick little sketch on on why they're there. Well, I love the word hero and heroic and everything that has to do with that. You mentioned a couple of times the hero's journey. You want to briefly touch on what the hero's journey is yeah, so the hero's journey, um, it's a phrase that Joseph Campbell helped popularize. Joseph Campbell is the great um, mythologist. He's did a, an interview series with Bill Moyers, you may have seen, and others may have seen. Um, I happened to be in a documentary with him called Finding Joe. Yeah, with Deepak Chopra, Laird Hamilton, Sir Ken Robinson, and others, um, which I highly recommend. You can watch it free on YouTube, Finding Joe, the movie, free YouTube. You'll find it. Um, but the basic idea is, um, Joseph Campbell would say, if you look at all cultures across all time, they all have a hero's myth. They all tell the story of a hero going on an adventure, battling dragons and other, you know, things that, that terrify them and then winning or learning and then coming back transformed and giving their gifts to the world. That's kind of the, the essence of every hero's journey in a movie you've ever seen. George Lucas based Star Wars on his mentor, Joseph Campbell's work, Harry Potter, fill in the blank. Um, but there are three basic components and in why we love those movies to make the implicit explicit is you see yourself in the fictional heroes. They're representing your own potentiality. It's a universal truth. Joseph Campbell's fun foundational book was called The Hero with a Thousand Faces across all these cultures, but ultimately the hero that you need to pay attention to is the one looking back at you in the mirror. So you are called to be your best, most heroic self. There are three phases to the hero's journey, if you boil it down to, to three phases. One, the hero gets a call to adventure, which they usually re refuse in the beginning, right? So you know that you're capable of more. You feel this, this calling to do more. You usually resist it. The hero that is you and in these movies and plays, et cetera, resist it. But then they get, there comes a point where you can't resist it anymore. There's a crisis, whether it's a health crisis or a job loss or a relationship challenge and boom, your safety is broken down and now you need to go out on this quest. Then you battle dragons, you get guides, you get buddies, Harry Potter got Dumbledore and Hermione and Ron and you go out and you battle these dragons. You win, you lose, you win, you learn, et cetera. Then you come back. And you bring back what Campbell calls the boon. The boon is your transformed consciousness. So you, in the process of going on a hero's journey, transform who you are and you bring your gifts back to the world that you left when you started your journey. That's the basic frame of a hero's journey. And um, 
I don't even believe, I know we're all called to do that in our own idiosyncratic ways over and over again, not just once a lifetime or even once a decade, all day, every day. Right now, you at different moments in this interview, and certainly me in this context, there were moments in which I was called to say something that might have been a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I chose to answer that call and to respond and to go out. So we're constantly in this evolutionary cycle in which we're leaving our comfort zone, um, we're facing whatever you know fears or, or whatever thoughts we might have, and we do what needs to get done. And as you get better and better at doing that on a micro level and a macro level, you create a life of deeper meaning and purpose. Mm. What do you think stands in the way of some people actually recognizing what their call is in their hero's journey? Yeah, I think um, there's some universal obstacles. Um, it's interesting because I was going to say the two things that I talk about in the book that my coach, again, Stutz, refers to his coach, Rudolf Steiner. Fear and laziness are the two of the universal obstacles for all of us. Fear, laziness, but which, which, which we can talk more about. But ultimately, I think people are... They're so distracted, you know, that, that we're so pulled in a reactive mode that we spend very, very little time with ourselves and thinking about, well, what do you want in your life? Because we all have either a niggle or a scream that the life that we have isn't quite the life we feel that we should be living. But if you're constantly on a treadmill of just doing whatever and then, you know, clicking on clickbait, clickbait and watching this and watching that. and there's never any time to actually connect to your best self. That pain builds unconsciously and you get further and further away from that clarity. So I think the first most important thing is to create some quiet in your life, to create some stillness, to create some space where you can actually listen to that voice that's, um, you know, beckoning you to, to live perhaps, you know, a more noble and virtuous and heroic life. Then you're facing and part of the reason why we numb ourselves is fear and laziness. So then cultivating the, the wisdom to know these things to be true to the extent you believe them to be true. And then the courage to conquer the fear and the discipline to conquer the laziness. And ultimately, the hero secret weapon is love. The, you know, the word hero in ancient Greece meant protector. So a hero was a protector. You and I are called to be protectors. Every single person this far into a, a chat like this we're called, everyone is called, but we are particularly called. Um, and you got to do the hard work to forge the strength for two, moving from victim to hero. Love is our secret weapon. Love is the fuel for the courage, for the discipline to go out and do the things that we know we need to do. Um, you know, my kids are my deepest inspiration, my team, us connecting in this context and the people we're blessed to hopefully serve in, the, in this chat. Um, that becomes the fuel to do the things you know you could be doing, um, especially when you don't feel like doing them. Um, and life takes a, a more heroic purpose. Mm. You mentioned a couple of times love being the common thread, like love being a secret weapon. Could you take a moment and define uh, love in that context? Because when we hear the word love, we think of, well, is it a love for somebody else? Is it a love for the thing? What does love look like? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a beautiful question that could be answered in an infinite number of ways. Um, one of the ways I like to frame it is um, extending ideas from Barbara Fredrickson, who's another brilliant positive psychologist. I think she's now at the University of North Carolina. She wrote a book called Love 2.0, where she talks about the neurobiology of love. 
And most of us think of love 1.0, which is, well, I love my wife and I love my kids. And then I have a few friends that I really love, right? And that's beautiful. That's important. Love 1.0. But then she says, you know what? You can create micro moments of love. She calls them micro moments of positivity resonance all day, every day with people that you've never met before. When you show up with positive regard and you create those positive moments, that's a micro moment of love. She calls it love 2.0. Now you and I, I believe I'm certainly experiencing it on my side. And if I'm in every aspect of my life, can I pause? Can I slow down long enough for a quick interaction with the woman who's helping me check out my groceries at Whole Foods? How are you? Oh, that's great. I love your tattoo. That's one of the places I always go because I have tattoos. What's that mean for you? And in 5, 10, 15, 30 seconds, boom. And you can look at my vagal tone. You can look at my neurochemistry and something changed. Love has an imprint physiologically. So happy people embrace those moments. Love 1.0, 2.0. Then I say, yes, yes, yes. But what about love 0.0? It's very difficult to give to others that which you are not giving to yourself. So self-love is really, really important. Holding yourself in a positive regard, having high standards, but also warmth for yourself, treating yourself the way that you would treat a dear, beloved friend or child. Um, and then I extend it all the way out. Love, you know, 8.0, bring your love to work. Make a connection between eight hours a day of work. Love 8.0, think about the people who benefit from the work you do. That is the fastest way to deepen your purpose right now. And you don't need to get a new job. All of us do things that serve people, whether it's our colleague or a client or someone downstream in the supply chain. We need to make the connection to the person that you are serving by the work that you do. And then I have love infinity point zero, which is love of everything, love of life, love of the challenges that we face, love of uh, our humanity and the, the beautiful experience we have in this life. Um, and so that's the way we frame it out. And then you got to practice it. So then you got to move from beautiful theory to concrete practice, which again is what my life's work is about. You got to go from knowing the things that are, everything I've said is obvious. That's all unbelievably obvious. Everyone has said it across all cultures. But the question is, can we move from common sense to common practice and do these things practically on a consistent basis? One thing that I really love, and I'm glad you defined what love was, is that it's it's on a continuum. You've got love 0, 0.0, which is love for ourselves. And I don't want to miss that point that if we don't love ourselves, it's really, really difficult to go out there and show love for the world. I mean, you might be able to do it maybe uh, in a spurt here or there, but for an extended period of time, I would think it would be difficult. The love infinity point zero, is that something that we can attain and stay there and have that love just 100%? Not 100% of the time, but this is Stoicism 101. I mean, it's Byron Katie's loving what is, you know? So she says, I... I I find that anytime I argue with reality, I lose, but only 100% of the time. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes. So you need to love what is, she says. The Stoics said the same thing. They say you need to know what's within your control and what's out of your control. It's rule number one of Stoicism. So what is, is, that is not within your control, right? Um, but how you respond to that which is, is within your control, your thoughts and your behaviors. Now, when you get hit, literally, or metaphorically by life, in that moment, you respond naturally, all humans do. 
But then there's a moment after that moment, or perhaps it's 10 seconds or 30 seconds or 60 seconds or one or two or three minutes for the most, uh, the greatest masters among us, in which you now step in between the stimulus and choose a better response. This is Viktor Frankl's wisdom. And Viktor Frankl was a practicing Stoic. He was literally practicing Stoicism in the Holocaust and the concentration camps. When he stepped in between the stimulus of losing his beloved family in the horrors of World War II, um, and he chose a better response, which is I'm a therapist in a concentration camp. I'm gonna play my role well. They cannot take away my freedom to choose how I'm going to respond to this situation. Um, now that's easier said than done, but it can be done. And um, having the wisdom to know that and the discipline to move from victim to creator to hero is, um, it's essential. It's Stephen Covey's habit number one, be proactive. Choose to step in between stimulus and response and be proactive in response to life's challenges. You need to be response able, he says, you know, and, and choosing your response, et cetera. Um, again, long answer to your great question. It's okay. Um, oh, as you're talking about our response in that moment when we actually do have a choice how we're going to react to that that uh, situation that's coming our way. You're right. You've got that human knee-jerk response and that happens at first, but then after that, we have a choice. Talk about where awareness comes in. Yeah, I think it all starts with being able to observe uh, what's going on, stepping a half an inch back. I mean, this is all mindfulness, meditation practices, even mental toughness practices, which are just mindfulness practices performed by athletes and special forces operators, you know, it's the same thing. But, um, you know, scientists, again, say that um, your attention, your awareness, your attention, being able to put your attention where you want, when you want, for how long you want, is incredibly important. And it's one of the things we've lost as we've immersed ourselves in these screens and um, especially the next generation. I mean, it's frightening to, to look at what's happening right now. But to have the ability to shift your attention or your awareness to see things from a slightly, you know, stepped back perspective and to observe these things rationally, um, allow the emotion to, to guide you to what might be missing in your life, um, but then to see it, have curiosity. This is a virtue to see what's working, what's not working, be open to feedback from life um, and from others who are worthy of giving you that feedback. And then to choose to, to make a different choice as you move forward is essential. I think it's it's an absolutely key component to embodying wisdom and all these ideals we're talking about. Mm, and embracing your day and just absolutely letting things that come your way, take it with almost like with the stride and then understanding that your response is going to dictate, you know, how you view that situation. I heard you talk about before you have a, if I remember correctly, you have a coin in your pocket that says Memento Mori. And uh, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> I have replaced it. We've got to give you a. Uh, oh, no. So, so I got to send you a coin. So, no, I've got okay. Memento right, yeah, Mori. I love it. Memento Mori. So, talk about what that means to you. And, uh, you know, what do you say to somebody who lives life with urgency? And then, what do you say to those who think about life on a five, 50 or 100 year timeline? Well, I think yes, again, and it's always yes, and so how do you bring a palpable urgency to life, not knowing that, you know, when your last moment is going to come, like, that's one of the fundamental truths of every true um, 
philosophy. Um, this is the only moment we're guaranteed, you know? Um, so I think there's a balance of palpable urgency with that long game, but memento mori is, um, remember death, ancient stoic and Greek practice again, um, or stoic practice principally, um, remember death. You know, I see a fly on our, you know, when fly lands on the window, whatever in our, in our kitchen, 28 days is what I say. It's how long a fly lives. And then I remind myself, ah, you don't have that much longer which was one of the jokes Aristotle had, you know, he's like, you talk about this, there's some river creature that lived for a day. That was its lifespan, right? So it lived for a day. And, and he used to say, well, all right, let's say that that poor creature died at noon. Would you mourn for it? And he's like, that's absurd. All right, so he died at noon instead of 5 p.m. You know, they only had a day to live. And he says, well, guess what? In the big picture, that's what you have, you know, and then take the most of it and celebrate the fact that our lives are frighteningly short and here we are complaining about the weather for me it's complaining about the legos on the floor or the toilet paper roll that fell off because my 11 year old doesn't seem to like to keep it on when he goes number two and all the other the breadcrumbs that our spouse leaves on the on the you know kitchen island or whatever all the little things we find irritating or all the distractions that we find ourselves consumed by step back see that this is a precious opportunity we have. It's time to wake up. This isn't a dress rehearsal. And memento mori is an ancient practice to help us concretize um, that, that profound wisdom. When I heard you talk about that, I started writing it like in my calendar and I have a little sticker above my computer that just reminds me to live life fully Live wow. life to its fullest in every moment because you don't know if you're going to get the next moment. And it's very interesting how those of us, especially when you're younger, wouldn't you say those who are young don't live with that perspective in mind that they could die sooner rather than later? They think, oh, I'm, I'm 20, 22, 23. I'm not going to die until I'm like 70 or 80. <laughs> well, God bless you and hopefully you're right. Yeah, I mean, right. So, yeah. There's a certain joy and uh, blessedness to the naivete of youth. But look, I'm turning 50 in a few months. And there's something about that. Like all the other milestones are like, awesome. I feel like, all right. I'm, and I still feel like I'm just really hitting my stride, integrating these ideas. Philosophers peak late. All these things are fun. But 50, you, very difficult for me. I had to be pretty, pretty, pretty Pollyannish to not own the fact that barring something significant, I'm almost certainly on officially the second half. There's a humility this process um, that that I think, again, brings a grounded, calm, equanimous, you know, disciplined sense of urgency. I, I don't need to fly away anymore, that manic, you know, kind of energy. It's like, no, I ground this with the gravitas, have the inspiration, and then bring um, that humility and hopefully the wisdom and discipline and love and courage and gratitude and hope and curiosity and zest to more and more moments um, in more and more days and, and celebrate, um, the gift that is life. Yeah. I love it. Well, first of all, happy birthday, happy 50th birthday. And just because you brought it up, I normally wouldn't have said this. I'm turning 52 next week. So happy birthday. <laughs> Let's go hero. Yeah. I mean, right. And I completely followed my, and we were talking about the hero's journey before, uh, I, thoroughly, totally 100% now recognize that my hero's journey, at least one that I can put into a box started last year. 
So it's mm. very exciting now that I can kind of understand and have a framework of why things are happening the way they are. And again, that has to go with that awareness and yep. education and understanding that, you know, life is going to be hard and it's okay. And to embrace that, we have talked about an lot <laughs> and I've enjoyed it. And I feel like we could talk about things for another hour, but I guess at some point, as they say, all good things must come to an end. Indeed, so, they do. Eyes from having friends, uh, having fun with friends is another one of my favorite lines. Let's go. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So at the end of every podcast, um, there are questions I ask. So let me just jump into those. Uh, besides your book, Arate, is there another book you would recommend that has had a significant impact on you? Again, that's a tough one to answer. I've, I've featured over 600 of them, as you know, in Philosopher's Notes. Um, well, I've, I've actually distilled 600 of them into notes. I don't know how many more books I've read than that. But my greatest influence in my life is Phil Stutz. Phil Stutz is featured in the Netflix documentary um, by another one of his clients, Jonah Hill. I highly recommend that. His book, The Tools, is phenomenal. Um, he's got a new book that just came out a couple weeks after mine came out, which is called Lessons for Living. I highly recommend both of those. And then Atomic Habits by James Clear. There's a reason why it's the best-selling book approaching and, and probably will be in self-development history. It's a great book on behavioral change. Cal Newport's Deep Work is another favorite book. And then a book that most people haven't heard of called Happy Together by um, some friends of mine, James Powelski and um, Susie Powelski. James is at the University of Pennsylvania, works with Martin Seligman. It's the science of virtuous relationships. So bringing your virtues into relationship, happy together is a phenomenal book. Those are some of my favorites. And then all the ancient Stoic stuff, Daily Stoic by Holiday. Um, we can go on and on and on. Yeah. My, one of my favorite was uh, Seneca's, um, what is it, On the Shortness of Life. Oh, it's so good. Oh, I love that one. I love that one. Um, as we close, what's one small step someone can do today that's going to help them change their tomorrow? Think about, well, get a good night of sleep. I mean, that's the most direct answer. I'll give you a part two to that. Get a good night of sleep. Get one more hour of sleep. If you're not getting the recommended seven to eight hours of sleep, you are not giving yourself a shot to show up as the best, most powerful version of yourself. What are you losing sleep over? Turn off the Netflix, turn off the email, get another hour of sleep. That's the fastest way to literally change your life overnight. Um, but then think about the one thing you could be doing that you know you could be doing that you're not doing, but if you did it, would most change your life. And then think about that you really want to do. And then think about the thing you need to stop doing. Your kryptonite, as I call it. That's actually the fastest way to change your life. Not start doing things, stop doing the thing that's diminishing your your power, what we would call your soul force. Um, that's now three answers to your question, but that's how I'd approach it. Perfect. Brian, thank you for the gift of your time. This has been amazing. And I, I mean, I, every podcast closes with, you know, where can people find you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, so then close um, it there. <laughs> you'll find the book, you know, Amazon, wherever you buy books or heroic.us slash arate or book rather. Um, uh, and then the main website is heroic.us. So heroic.us, you can find the app in your app stores, um, Android, iOS, just search heroic. We're the training platform. Um, but I appreciate you, Sue. Happy almost birthday. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Thank you, Cindy. And I'm um, looking forward to some great stuff in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. Me too. Me too, Brian. Thank you again for your time. Bless you. Likewise. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Small Steps Big Wins podcast. I value your time with me and I seek to make every moment count. In order to make lasting change in your life, listening is usually not enough. So I want to ask you, what practical steps are you going to put into action today as a result of listening to this podcast? Remember, any step, any action, no matter how small, starts your journey to a big win. And if you're not sure where to get started, check out my website, personalcoachfinder.com and find someone who can help. Remember, life doesn't get better by chance. It gets better by choice. Take small steps today and make your life awesome, friends.